0: Not more, Tassa, Hakawato, Arahato, some ma, some Budassa. Not more, Arahato, some ma, some Budassa. Not more, Arahato, some ma, some Budassa. But hung among We're in the middle of the talk called Buddha Knows Dhamma uh, by Lumpur Sumato from this book, Don't Take Your Life Personally. Uh, But I thought uh, before carrying on with the reading, um, we'd just uh, pick up on the conversation that we had yesterday about um, characteristics that uh, carry on from, uh, say... uh, personality and how they sustain themselves or how they uh they function when uh, even when there's a, an enlightened being and um uh, the the sense of um uh, uh, say personality or, or character style and so on there's a, I didn't mention it but uh, it came to mind afterwards there's a, a sutta called the mahago Singa Sutta, which is number 32 in the uh middle length discourses and in that sutta, it, it starts off with um, uh, Mahamogalana and Mahakasapa uh, and, Maha and <coughs> going off with, um, uh, seeing it's a beautiful night in the forest, uh, the moonlight is shining and the, the forest is filled with uh, fragrance from the uh, from the trees, the Gosinga, Sala trees. And they go and find Venerable Ananda <coughs> and Revata, and they uh, go and Anuruddha and go off to visit uh, Venerable Sariputta, thinking, let's go and visit Sariputta and ask him to give us a dhamma talk. And so then they, they go and visit uh, Venerable Sariputta, and then uh, <coughs> Sariputta uh, asks the question, first of all, to, uh, to Venerable Ananda. So, uh, Venerable Ananda, uh, what kind of a, a, uh, a monk do you think would illuminate the forest on a beautiful night like this? And then Ananda says, oh, one who has learned much, who remembers what they've learned, and who can re- recite with the with letter and the meaning, the words of the teacher, and then they ask, uh, "It's the venerable Revata, So, uh, which is a characteristic of, of venerable Ananda that he has extremely good memory and and could recount the teachings perfectly. And then they ask Revata what he thinks or what his idea of a perfect monk would be or, or the, the the kind of monk that would illuminate the forest. And he said, "One who seeks solitude meditates alone." And then they ask venerable Anuruddha. And he says, oh one who can see into all of the the ten thousandfold universal system, all different." Realms of existence, which again is his speciality, and so on and so forth. With Mahamoglan about one who can exercise all the psychic powers, and so one by one, each of them uh, says uh, when they say, "What what kind of a monk do you think would illuminate the forest?" They each sort of describe themselves. (laughs) It's interesting that they, they, uh, but without any kind of sense of pride or being inflated, or uh, but each one describes their own particular speciality. And then interestingly enough, after they had this dialogue, then they said, well, let's go and ask the Master, let's go and talk to uh, the Blessed One and see what uh, what he has to say. So they go to to see the Buddha and they recount the discussion that they've had and talked about these these different um, observations they've had about their own characters and their own personalities and, and so forth. And then they ask the Buddha, so what kind of a monk do you think would illuminate the forest on a, a night like this? And the Buddha said, the one who sits down and says, I will not move from this spot until the complete full enlightenment has been realized. So that it's interesting that it's one of the the very few places in the canon where the Buddha, in a sense, talks about his own personality or his own um, things that were sort of primary for him. And so that quality of resolution or determination is what he names in that, in that context as being a um, sort of defining quality or something that... Uh, uh, say is a um, dominant personality trait within within his own life, so that that is a uh, uh, kind of a little window into the, the Buddha seeing that uh, that quality of aditana resolution, that sense of, of um, uh, say determination, was uh, uh, something that was uh, sort of supremely significant for him. We just thought i add that into the mix before we carry on. So. Um, and we were talking about the refuge of of buddho, or the, uh, uh, the quality of awakened awareness as being uh, the refuge. Learning to trust in this refuge allows us to integrate into the life that we have with all its distractions, problems, difficulties, pleasures and pains. Once we really get a feeling and an understanding of this reality, we can go wherever we want and always be in this state of awareness because it isn't destroyed by the conditions that we're experiencing. This, however, takes real surrender and faith. The word surrender often gives the impression of one giving up, a kind of negative, unconditional surrender. It may be better to use the word relaxation if the word surrender is too much for us. What I'm pointing to is this letting go, just this trusting, and something that we can't objectively hold up or let or let others know about we can know it intuitively of course and we can begin to trust it rather than just trusting in the personality which endlessly doubts and gets caught in feeling intimidated by what others say or by what, all the other experience, or by all the other experiences that we have as a buddhist monk i'm in the center of a worldwide buddhist movement so i get all these things coming at me different attitudes, views, opinions, and challenges. If I didn't have this strength within, it would be pretty difficult sometimes. One can feel like a ping pong ball just being battered from one end of the table to the other by so many strong views and opinions. The Buddhist world is chock-a-block full of them. And then there are the new age groups, the interfaith groups, the scientists, and so on. The encouragement I give, however, is to learn to recognize intuitive wisdom. It isn't that difficult. It isn't so refined and special that it's beyond any of us. It isn't something that we will miss if we are not absolutely at our peak. If we begin to realize, in fact, that intuitive wisdom is so ordinary that we might just notice it, like the space in this room, or the fish in the water that says, I'm looking for water, whilst being surrounded by it. We are surrounded. The buddho is everywhere. It isn't some special, refined type of samadhi some concentrated state that we get as a result of living in a cave for 10 years, it's accessible all the time because it's here and now. And the the here and now can hold anything. War or peace, health or sickness, a blossoming life or a life that's falling apart, whatever. None of these things is a problem, really, for this sense of refuge. The problem is not within the conditioned realm, but with how we understand it. So uh, again, for those who might not have been here for the previous reading, then this is talking about uh, the uh, buddho, uh, the uh, quali- referring to the quality of awakened awareness, that quality of of knowing, that uh, is, say, uh, um, what uh, Lumpur Sumedho is talking about here. Also, Lumpur Cha would frequently rec- uh, would would recognise or point to as being you know, the real refuge is this uh, quality of of awareness. So, and sometimes Lumpur Cha would speak in quite a a, a kind of um, challenging way. He'd say things like you know the Buddha who lived two two and a half thousand years ago uh, he's just an a, an idea in your mind it's just a uh, say a, a story that we hear um or you know the the or the pointing at a Buddha image saying that you know that really <laughs> we think of that as the Buddha uh, but you know, the statue is not a refuge. The memory is not a, separate, not a refuge. The idea of a, the Buddha or the word Buddha isn't isn't a refuge. Um, a refuge is a safe place. So that's a pretty heretical kind of thing to say that you know, the Buddha who lived two and a, half, and a half thousand years ago is not a refuge. So within a, a context of a Thai society and sitting amongst a whole group of dedicated monastics, it's kind of a, a challenging thing to say. But he would say it because. Uh, the uh, <coughs> The emphasis he was trying to make is that, and what he would say would be a re- a refuge is a safe place it 's a place of genuine security, genuine stability, so the statue is not a safe place. you can hang onto the statue, but it won't protect you from suffering. You can hang onto the 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 name of the Buddha or the you know carry around a a copy of the story of the buddha 's life, or you can be um Remembering the Buddha's name or reciting his qualities, you know it arahang sama, but you know none of that will genuinely protect the heart from from suffering, but what will protect the heart from suffering, what is a genuine refuge, a genuine safe place, and what is a, a real jewel the, the it's called the the triple gem, that real jewel or a real gem that which is truly valuable and reliable is the this quality of awareness this is something that really can be depended on, and that if it's developed, clarified, then regardless of circumstance, then uh, the the mind can uh, say have a uh, a, uh, a skillful abiding. It can have a peaceful abiding. It can be uh, fully in the in the face of it, like Eshin Sameto is saying here. they can be it can be aware of war or peace, health or sickness, blossoming life or a life that's falling apart. Whatever mm-hmm. that. If that the quality of awareness is really developed as the refuge, then the the even as there are difficult or painful things happening, the heart is not disturbed or confused or or obstructed by that. So it's a strong emphasis on the, the the Buddha as a refuge as an internal quality, and that's very much a theme um, that uh, both and uh, Lumpo would would uh, encourage. And often when we do the uh, the refuges and Precepts here on a, on a Saturday and a Sunday morning, I'll make reference to that, that kind of principle, that they are, have those external aspects, of, say the refuge in the Buddha, the Buddha as Gautama Buddha, the great teacher and founder of this religious form, uh, but it has an inner aspect of the quality of, uh, of awakened awareness. Refuge in the Dhamma is the Buddha's teaching, the words of the explanation and description of uh, the way things are, but the dhamma, as an internal experience or internal quality, is the the f- very fabric of this body, this mind, the the, the natural order of things. And uh, refuge in sangha, uh, sangha uh, refuge is not just the say the those who have awakened to the Buddha's uh, teaching or have awakened to dhamma and, uh, and various stages of liberation, the arya sangha, say in the chanting that uh, is referred to, but uh, Sanga as an internal quality you can reflect on in in, in different ways. Um, so often Ajahn Sumedha would say, "Take refuge in sangha is taking refuge in uh, that which <coughs> that which knows uh, the uh, the or that which follows the practice, so that uh, a supatipanna, that which loves to practice well, loves to practice directly, loves to practice uh, <laughs> insightfully and with integrity." So a simple way that I like to to phrase that is to say to Refuge in the sangha is not just looking to the external mentors and examples of, of those who have awakened or uh, members of the monastic community, but as an internal refuge, it's listening to that voice in the heart that loves the good, that in the heart which knows the good and, and loves the good and rejoices in that. To take refuge in sangha is to choose to listen to that that which says, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's noble, that's wholesome, that's respectful, that's, that's beautiful. The Buddha-Dhamma Sangha brings us into the reality of our own human limitation. It's not just in terms of Buddha-Dhamma, the Buddha's teaching, but also in terms of our humanity, Sangha or community, in being men and women with interests and the determination to practice. Sangha is not something personal. It isn't a question of taking it as some kind of personal quality. It always has this sense of the group, the church in Christianity and the Sangha in Buddhism. We're not operating on an individual level of, I imagine someday, I'm going to do my practice independently. I don't need you. I can do it myself. I don't need those monks and nuns and all those people. I'm going to prove that I can do it, get it together, get it together all on my own. There's no sense of humility in that. That is the ego which is determined to sustain itself as an independent condition. Sangha then has this sense of the group, of all of us taking refuge in that which is good in our humanity, which refrains from doing evil and does good in terms of morality, sila, or generosity, dana. We don't just think of ourselves. The encouragement always is to help, to share, to be generous. And there is the commitment to practice, the intention to give up selfish personal preferences for the welfare of the sangha. So the sangha works as a refuge in the world of living, breathing humanity. But then it gets misinterpreted gets idealized or relegated to meaning only arahants, or only highly attained beings, or only monks. You hear people say that in order to take refuge in the Sangha, you have to become a monk or a nun. Somebody told me he couldn't be a Buddhist because he didn't, didn't want to shave his head. But you can be a Buddhist and keep your hair! Exclamation mark. So going back to the word surrender, and uh, as uh, Lumpur points out, it can have a negative effect. Uh, Connotation, a negative sense of just sort of giving up, or oh, there's no point trying, or okay, I give up, um, and a kind of um, uh, say stepping down from from responsibility or sort of switching off or or a sort of self protection. But rather in this this context, what uh, surrender means is surrendering self interest or self concern, and so. Living in the Sangha, I think most people who have been in the Sangha for short or longer periods of time will recognise that surrender is a lot of what happens on a daily basis. They're just sort of giving up what you prefer to do in order to fit in with the group, in order to I say, respect the, the value system of, of the whole group. So that um, meeting with your own preference and saying, Well, I'd really like to okay, well the group wants to do this, I want to do that, okay, I can surrender, I can I can let go of of that, um, that, to say that preference or that opinion, and so that surrender in that in that respect is a gesture of, of strength rather than a gesture of, of weakness. It's a, it's letting the the the, uh, the strength of the heart uh, and uh, its attunement to the time, the place, the situation, the the, the group that you're you're with. It's a, it's a, uh, let's say letting that that strength function and letting the the habits of self interest, self concern fall away. Are there any questions, thoughts, reflections so far? Okay. Oh, yes. Mm. The problem, I know it's words and semantics, but the problem with
1: <laughs> a line as a abiding awareness, uh, it must create. and patriarchy, abide in abiding nowhere, the a mind arises. If we take awareness as a place of abiding, then there has to be something that can be found. But when awareness is aware of itself, there is no place. It's unborn and unmade and unmanifest. It's the only thing. Every projection of it
0: is made manifest and can be envisaged. That's why we call it non abiding. Yeah I don't know if uh, Ajahn Sumedho actually used the word abiding but
1: place um,
0: well that's, that's true but uh, the buddha himself used the the terms going for refuge that's the language of the buddha himself they, uh, that he he established that's, I go to refuge for the Buddha, to the, to the Dhamma and to the Sangha. That, that's the Buddha's words. Yes. So yes. if you want to argue with the Buddha, great. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like any word is, can only be partially true. Mm-hmm. One of the most useful teachings is yena yena anyatati. whatever you conceive it to be, the truth is always other than that. So every word can only be partially true it's it's always an approximation so that uh, uh you you know we you do the best you can with words but they can only ever be partially true so that uh, the buddha himself uses that language of going for refuge so that then that has a a, a relevance on on one particular on a certain level and so that the uh, <coughs> if you try to always talk on a on an ultimate level then you and function in the world that way, you get into a lot of trouble. You know, if you're with your family and, and they say Nevin, say there is no Nevin. Well, there neither is a Nevin nor no Nevin. There is both a Nevin and a, and a not Nevin. There is neither Nevin nor not Nevin. But do you want a cup of tea or don't you? <laughs> 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 so you can either you know, that it's uh you can get kind of fussy about language. But the point is the. The using language without delusion. So someone uh, challenged the Buddha at one time and said, yeah, you give these teachings about all dhammas are not-self, but yet you use personal pronouns like he and she and they. Uh, so doesn't that contradict your teaching about not-self? And The Buddha said, I use the common speech um, for the sake of communication, but I use it without any delusion with respect to the idea of a permanent independent entity.
1: Shadow That's what happens when we use that conventional reality whereby we're saying that there's something there that isn't. The shadow is there, but it isn't you. It's a projection that you're putting on it, but the body is there, the body's moving around, this whole world is here. The projections we put on top of them are projections, aren't they? Yeah, but uh, I'm not quite sure
0: why now, you're asking about or saying that i mean what's i mean i'm i'm giving this reading and so uh, uh well, it was i well uh <laughs> hmm. i'm i'm not sure why you're bringing that up with relationship to this this oh, uh, this teaching in terms so of uh-huh where is he well <laughs> well uh, the 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 point that I just said is that it, it's talked in terms of non-abiding but also on a relative level, we talk about going for refuge going to refuge means stepping away from that that thought I am the body, I am the mind to recognize that that uh, uh, that quality of knowing is the uh, is the the only substantial reality that can be relied upon. So you don't have to call it a place, but uh, I think the the most helpful thing is to know that language is, is always is <laughs> is always relative and partial. So that the uh, when you're li- listening to the teachings, then taking that as the framework that the the, the <clears throat> when it's uh, say I go uh, I go to refuge for the Buddha, that can be taken uh, uh, and used as a way of say reifying or making solid a sense of i or it can be uh, a way of expressing the mind waking up and letting go of everything it depends how you how you hear it how you hold it so that uh, so if it's always recognized that words can only point to the the truth rather than embody it then they can, they can be used skillfully like the buddha saying i use personal pronouns like she he we they um, uh, without any delusion about any kind of independent uh, permanent entities so that the words are being used because it's common speech and we that's the easiest way to communicate if you want to communicate something then you use words (laughs) any other thoughts reflections questions okay you can be a Buddhist and keep your hair. For those of us whose hair is staying on their heads, not falling out. As I've said before, the sound of silence, to me, is this still point. We can see a point as one little dot, aim for it, and then exclude everything else in the process. Or we can see the point as something that includes everything, as in the case of intuitive awareness, sati sampajanya. When we are into the more conditioned aspects of our personality, we see a point, concentrate on it, and have to suppress and separate off all that is outside of that point. The other way of looking at it is to see the point as that which includes. To me, this is what right concentration, unquote, is in the Eightfold Path. This is what it really means. It's not shutting the world out. It's not absorbing just into this very refined little point, in order to get the right concentration, samasamadhi, it's the point that includes everything. Everything belongs. And that means everything good as well as bad. So when I rest in this silence, in this stillness, it's like a point, but it includes everything. I don't have to close my eyes, turn round and look away, or even stop talking in order to be in this still point, because it includes even my talking right now. My talking like this is not interfering with this still point. The still point, or the sound of silence, has this sense of expansiveness. It has no boundary and just seems to permeate everywhere. At first you might think of the sound of silence as some kind of buzz in the ear. Some people, when they hear it, they don't like it because they identify it as tinnitus or something annoying. The word buzz itself isn't a particularly nice word, is it? When we talk about buzzes, it usually refers to unpleasant sounds. If we call it a hum, that would be better. Because you, <clears throat> because what you call it helps you accept it. If you call it tinnitus, you're just going to hate it. But if you call it the primordial sound, or the cosmic hum, or Krishna's flute, it's more interesting. It seems to be that which is before everything. Because if you recognize it and stay with it for a while, you begin to find that you stop thinking, and when you stop thinking, you stop recreating your emotional habits. You stop busily projecting and controlling. So this uh, distinction that uh, po makes uh, here, saying that the point which includes and the point which excludes, this is a, a very, um, say, commonly repeated theme for him. So that uh, often when we talk about concentration and in Dhamma books and many teachings with a one-pointed concentration or ekagata literally means one one point or one peak one summit um, uh, one pointedness and so that uh, that uh, is generally presented in terms of the mind fixing on a single object like the feeling of the breath or uh, a mental image uh, say a a, a, a visualized uh, pattern of, of light or it can be a, a particular um, a mantra like uh, Bhutto or something like that. So the mind takes a particular uh, sensation or perception and clears everything else out of the picture and just focuses on that one thing, you know, absorbs into the breath and consciously excludes or trims everything else out of the picture. So the attention just goes on to one single tiny little spot and then absorbs into that spot. So this is what uh, Lumpur is referring to as the point which excludes, and that certainly has uh, has its uh, its value in terms of establishing a steadiness of attention and uh, and concentration as a, a a kind of mental training to help the the attention say rest steadily uh, in the present with the present reality. But uh, what he's pointing to as the point which uh, includes is say taking that that one point and sort of expanding it so that that one point includes the whole of the experiential field so that rather than the the one point is just this one sensation and everything else is is shut out it's expanding the whole field of of attention to include everything so that the point is still a point but the point is the present reality the present moment (laughs) It's it's a bit difficult because in english the point can refer to a spot or it can refer to a meaning of something that you're talking about the point of what i'm saying is like it equals the meaning of it. But in this respect, it's like referring to a spot. But it's uh, expanding that that spot, or that, that that point, to include everything. So it's, I think it's very significant for uh, Lumpur Sumato's comment here that says, um, <coughs> he says, to me, this is what right concentration, samasamadhi in the eightfold path really means. It's not shutting the world out, but absorbing just into this very refined little point in order to get right concentration. It's the point that includes everything. Everything belongs. So in that uh, that openness, there's also a quality of, of loving kindness or acceptance so that uh, if the heart is really open to the whole f- f- field of experience, then it can't be partial. Like I want this bit. I don't want that bit. This is good. That's bad. I like this. I don't like that. This is beautiful. That's ugly. This is just boring. There's a, that quality of uh, radical acceptance or uh, what i would see as the uh, the say receptive quality of loving kindness the sense that everything belongs everything is a part of nature beautiful ugly pleasant painful inside outside everything belongs it's all part of nature you can't say anything doesn't belong in nature if it if it exists then it belongs it's it's here so it's that that openness of heart that it, uh, that receives and acknowledges everything uh, every quality of of it, the experiential field in the, the same way, and so that that uh, uh, listening to the sound of silence is a way of uh, say supporting that quality of openness. That uh, it's also for most people it doesn't have a a location. It's just, it just it's just uh, the sound is just present. Some people uh, that's not the case, and I say. Uh, Yeah, Ajahn, uh, uh, you said that the sound is everywhere, but actually it's just here. It's about a foot away from my head on the left-hand side. (laughs) And there's there's actually a felt spot where it seems to be emanating from. I said, really? So for some people it is that way. It does seem to actually have a geographical location, but that is somewhat uncommon. Uh, for, For most people it's a pervasive presence that it's uh it's kind of everywhere um and so that that uh what that that does listening to the the um the inner sound the sound of silence then even though we're we're seeing these different different people different bodies different forms the the colors of the room and and so forth then the sound of silence uh helps to uh, say take the attention off the the distinctions between the different objects and just to uh, say bind the quality of experience together in terms of of its uh, all the different aspects of perception with the quality of, of suchness that it's whether it's blue or red or green or purple they're all such they're all this way they're, they are thus uh, so it's rather like if you're taking your attention off the surface of the sea rather than looking at individual waves and discriminating this wave and that wave and this wave and that wave this wave that wave that it's the sea and the presence of the sea is like this so it's uh, a, a, it helps the mind to acknowledge that unifying quality of all experience the, the suchness the ta-ta-ta quality of all of all experience also when he says here about these different Ways of of naming this inner sound. The, uh, different traditions. You have different ways of talking about it. So, uh, on a on a medical level, you might call it tinnitus or just ringing in the ears. Um, or the, in uh, uh, in the, say in the, out of the Hindu tradition, as he says, it's the sound of Krishna's flute. Or it's also called Brahmanada or the the the, uh, the divine sound. Um, the uh, I believe also out of the ancient Greek tradition, this is what they refer to as the music of the spheres. This is the kind of the sound of the universe um, so that uh, uh, the different ways it can be named if you want to, to give it a, a kind of a more um, uplifting or glamorous uh, incur- inspiring name you can do but uh, uh, as uh, is, uh, as I was saying before it doesn't rem- doesn't really matter what you call it. <laughs> it's uh, the, the developing of it as a, as a meditation object and using it to support. That quality of of a, a sustained, uh, open awareness and attentiveness is the is the significant thing. So um, you can call it whatever you like. It's like uh, also in an, uh, other Dhamma talks when uh, <coughs> people would ask. Uh, I remember one Sunday afternoon talk. Uh, pretty sure it was a Sunday afternoon talk when. Um, Lumpur Sumedha was uh, speaking about ultimate reality, and he's saying you can call it the unconditioned, you can call it the unborn, you can call it nibbana, you can you can call it uh, the um, the deathless. He says you can call it Montague if you like. You know, call it whatever you like. (laughs) And so at the time I thought Montague. You know, where where does that come from? And just like a random name out of the picked out of his hat, but. um, it was actually a Thai monk who was translating <laughs> that, that, uh, that, that statement into Thai, and he said, "Is that got something to do with Romeo and Juliet? <laughs> and I thought, wow! It might. Because in Romeo and Juliet, then the, because one belongs to the Montague family and the other one belongs to the Capulets, and they fall in love with each other, then because of that, they're, uh, they're, sort of, they're divided because the families are fighting with each other. But then, in that in that play, you have this famous uh, statement: a rose, "A rose, by any other name would smell as sweet." So they're saying, oh, "It doesn't really matter what the name is." Um, and so that uh, uh, maybe that uh, were the name Montague sprang to Lumpur's mind out of some vestigial memory of Romeo and Juliet. This sort of you, know, you can call it what you like. You know, a, a rose by any other name would, would smell as sweet and so you can call it montague if you like so that's, yes they can be um, it, I, I wouldn't say it's um, it's always the case um, they're, if they if they're speaking in terms of ultimate reality and that, uh, you know, if you say that uh, God was a man with a long white beard who created the world six thousand years ago, and that's what that's what the ultimate reality is—it's a uh, an invisible uh, an invisible guy with a with a long white beard who's controlling everything—I would say if that's your belief, then I say that's not really quite the same as the Buddhist version of ultimate reality. But if in, in, if you'd speak to a, a, a Christian or or a theist who says that, well, there is an ultimate reality, but that ultimate reality is, is non-personal, it's timeless, it's uh, <coughs> it's fundamentally non-describable, and it's the basis of all uh, uh, of all that is. And you say, okay, you can relate to that. So oftentimes you find that it's the mystical traditions of uh, different religious forms, whether so it's Islam or Christianity or Judaism or, or Hinduism or... or uh, or uh, Sikhism and, uh, the, uh, and the many of the, um, the kind of native religions of the world, it's the uh, the mystical traditions or, or the the contemplative traditions. Then there's a, a, a tremendous closeness. And so that uh, when Ajahn Chah was um, having a dialogue once with a, a Catholic uh, Catholic priest in Thailand, there was a few Catholic missionaries around northeast Thailand and. Some of the the missionary priests were, were quite good friends with Ajahn Chah and would come and spend time. There was actually one who would he would come and spend Christmas at Wat Bananachat rather than with his um, <laughs> own parishioners in his village, Father Posay. And uh, <clears throat> and uh, one of the, the one of the, the these um, Catholic missionaries once asked Ajahn Chah, uh, Do you think the uh, the Buddhist uh, expression? of Do you think the Buddhist ultimate reality and Christian ultimate ultimate reality? is the same ultimate reality he said well if if they're both ultimate how can you have two of them <laughs> you know you what know, you know if they if they, if they are both referring to ultimate reality it's got to be the same one if you follow that so if uh, so to him it was you know it was a kind of obvious that the um, the reality of things is independent of the words that are used to refer to them. To that, uh, the fundamental reality of, of what, how, how life in the universe is and, and its nature—that's independent of human society and language and ideas. That that, that's, that reality functions regardless of whether humans are around or not. Um, but uh, the whether a religious form has the the, the structures and the, the ways whereby that, that reality can be awakened to, can be realized, is another thing. And so that uh, what, the way the Buddha put it uh, in, his, uh, in his own teachings, he said, if a spiritual path contains the, the elements of the Eightfold Path, then it can lead to total liberation. It doesn't matter how you phrase things, but if it has those elements um, of, uh, of the Eightfold Path, then it can lead to complete liberation. If it doesn't contain those, those, uh, those elements, then it can't lead to liberation. So that, say for example, um, not to me maligning um, the theistic religion, but just to so, say, you know, if you believe that the, that the world was created by a, a, a man, a Jewish guy with a long white beard 6,000 years ago, and that it, uh, if you believe that's the truth, then you'll be, uh, you'll be happy forever when you die. You, You can hold on to that as an idea, as a belief. It might might help you to some degree, but uh, I would say that holding on to that idea as a sort of mythological belief, that in itself can't possibly liberate. Just as, uh, say, from the Hindu tradition, uh, the idea that if you bathe in the river Ganges, then all your bad karma will be washed away. Well, you can believe that, but... uh, You can believe it all you like, but it's not going to happen, because that's not the way that the, the universe works. Uh, so similarly you know you can recite buddha sangha all day and all night but if with uh, thinking oh, if, as long as i'm reciting the uh, taking the taking a refuge in, in buddha dhamma and sangha then i'm going to be safe like, well <laughs> that's a, again that's hanging on to an idea uh, and so that the um, uh, there might be some wholesome qualities that are developed along the way and that it might make you into a very Kind, generous, uh, unselfish person having those principles that are sort of there in the middle of your life. So it, it, uh, those those beliefs are not necessarily an obstruction to good qualities. But what actually uh, leads to the uh, f- f- complete liberation of the heart, the unshakable deliverance of the heart, that's another story. And so that uh, I feel that's a, it's a, a, a very helpful teaching of the Buddha's, where he said. It doesn't really matter the language that you use as long as those qualities of right view, right, uh, right resolution, right speech, right action, right livelihood, and so on. You can name them how you like. You can use the symbolism that you like. The, the language doesn't matter. Those qualities themselves, as qualities of, of the heart and, and, the, and the way of, of operating, that's what matters. But, yeah, so you call it Montgomery, you know, Montague, if you like. <laughs> the, the name is not the important thing so that i mean sometimes you get this sort of new agey type philosophies that say you know all you know all paths lead to the same goal it's like well they don't <laughs> it's like they all all roads lead to rome Um uh, no <laughs> they don't on the actual physical human level no they don't all the you know you know that you know, that's saying, all roads lead to rome they don't so they, they lead in all kinds of different directions and so uh, oftentimes people will say to me, "We're all, we're all going to go to Nibbāna eventually, aren't we?" Ajahn? we're all going to get in line eventually. And I say, "Well, that's not the Buddha's teaching. You know, if you if you do the right thing, then you'll you'll realise Nibbāna and and uh, rebirth will be ended. If you don't do the right thing, no, it won't end. It just goes on and on and on and on and on. That's what samsara means. So it's it's not a um, a kind of uh, uh, sort of uh, in a way like a childlike religion of it's all going to we're all going to end up happily it's all going to end happily ever after isn't it you know please tell me it's all going to be all right it's a religion of self-reliance like yeah if you if you train the mind and work in the right way yes it will end happily but if you don't it won't so it's not very comforting um but it's it's much more realistic and this is one of the reasons why i find it it's it's very helpful in terms of religion. It's not just sort of uh, making promises, but rather uh, that everything's going to turn out good in the end. It's, it's, it, no, it's it, it makes a difference, the choices that you make moment by moment. And so that um, there are a lot of religious forms uh, religious teachings that that will, uh, say, promise that you know, all beings will become Buddhas or all beings will be enlightened or all beings will be, Absorbed into Brahman at the end of the universe, or uh, <coughs> you know, the, uh, uh, those kind of things. But uh, that's not part of the the Buddha Dhamma of the the Pali Canon. It's very much a it's it's up to you. Uh, it's it's a it's a teaching of self reliance. So it's more demanding in some respects. But uh, you know, he we said, "Well, please tell me it's all going to be all right. You know, we're all going to go to, to Nibbāna Nirvana in the end." Well. <laughs> But it, but that's a coming from a childlike place, uh, when, uh, in in uh, in the heart when people want that or asking for that. But uh, I feel it's a it's a uh, a different approach that we have within the the, uh, the Pali canon, where the Buddha is saying, "Here's a way to grow up," <laughs> and that uh, this is a. Uh, uh, say a capacity that you have that is there for, for each individual. The fundamental reality is this, but whether it's realised and awakened to or not, it's entirely down to the 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 work and the choices an individual makes along the way. And if you don't make the right choices and do the do the work, then it won't happen. Okay. Thought proliferates. So when you think, you just go from one thought to another. You might manage to stop yourself thinking, but then it starts up again, and you get angry with yourself for thinking too much when you don't want to. So you might ask yourself, how can I stop the thinking? I'm such an obsessive thinker. I just think too much. How can I stop it? But if you're going to think, do it deliberately. Don't just wander in thought. Deliberately think. Bhutto, say. Then you'll cease being averse to your thinking mind. You'll cease trying to stop thinking, and we'll just accept it. You will just rest in the silence. Then you'll have this sense of emptiness. The sound of silence can seem like a buzz in the ear, maybe. But as you trust it more, you realize that it is expansive, that it has no boundary, that it is everywhere and permeates everything. This is how I experience it. Even calling it sound can be misleading, because then one thinks of the perception one has of sound. It's more like something behind the sounds of everything, if you notice. It underlies, is in the background. It is the one point that includes, and so includes all sounds. In the forest tradition, putting on and taking off the robes is regarded as one of the practices. You have this complicated robe to wear, and you're told when you first ordain, the monk should be mindful when putting on his robe and when taking off his robe. This is the ideal. We so might not be used to being mindful around dressing and undressing, at least I wasn't. It wasn't something I was particularly interested in. I probably thought about it, I probably, sorry, it, uh, it wasn't something I was particularly interested in. I probably thought about anything but what I was doing at the time. Putting on the robe, then, is given as a practice. Actually, a lot of monks would love us to wear trousers instead. Part of me wouldn't mind that at all. But in another way, I feel somehow that after wearing this thing for so long, it would be a shame to give it up. Also, it is a way of accepting something that that is not all that convenient. A bit of a trouble. And it has taught me a lot. The mind proliferates, complains and judges. But from this still point, you see how you can really make yourself unhappy about things They aren't all that important. The way I see it, if this is the way they do it, then do it this way. Don't make it into a problem. Resting in this stillness allows the sense of putting on the robe without getting lost in the wandering mind, or getting caught in the perfunctory habit of rushing in, putting it on as quickly as possible. These are ways of slowing down and giving more attention to the details of ordinary life. The same with washing the dishes or taking a bath. These things, can be meditations in the sound of silence. I used to like washing the dishes at Amravati after the morning porridge because it's cold in the winter on that hill. It used to be very cosy. Back in the old days, the icy bacon slicer wind would come from the north and wouldn't stop till it reached the bone. It's uh, <coughs> very comfy, cosy nowadays. I used to like washing the dishes at Amravati after the morning porridge because it's cold in the winter on that hill. You can go into the scullery where, where, where there are these nice windows, the sun shines in and there are these deep stainless steel sinks which hold lots of hot water and nice suds. Then washing the dishes in the silence I found even sensually pleasant. When I was a child, my parents used to make my sister and me wash the dishes after dinner. Because of that I developed an aversion to washing dishes. So my immediate personal reaction to doing it was, oh, oh no, washing dishes? Of course, being the most senior monk at Amravati, I can get out of doing jobs like that quite easily. It isn't as though they asked me to do it. But what I'm saying is that the perception of washing dishes can be a negative one. They have to be washed, let's get them out of the way so we can get on uh, to the temple and practice. My personality thinks like that. You've got to wash the dishes. You've got to be responsible. You can't just leave these dirty dishes around. They've got to be washed. That's sensible. So I'll wash them. I'll get them done as quickly as possible so I can get on to my practice, because practice is in the temple. It isn't in the scullery. One can change from that perception to this sense of expansion, to the silence and stillness that contains everything. Then the one point that includes allows the scullery to be a place of practice. When one abides in this stillness. One can find a sort of pleasure, even in doing something as ordinary as washed to do every day. It's not really that unpleasant. This is learning to integrate the awareness. So this isn't a subtle plot. This because I was talking about enjoying and washing the dishes the other day, and Lumpur was talking about it here. This is completely coincidental. I didn't know this passage was here in this talk It's a coincidence. But, um, it's amazing what a change of attitude can do when it's finding negativity towards anything of that nature. If you have the idea that you just have to be mindful without this sense of including whatever arises, you're always going to be failing at it. Then you'll get discouraged and think, I can't practice in daily life. I can only really practice on retreat, where I don't have to wash the dishes, or cook, or talk to people. Then I can really practice. That's where it's at. In the office, in the supermarket, in the kitchen, at home with the kids screaming, "Ah, I can't do it! That is seeing practice just in terms of being able to concentrate, in terms of not being aggravated by harsh impingement or a lot of activity. But that's like sensory deprivation, the kind of concentration you get by cutting off sensory contact to whatever is happening where you are. Your refuge, however, is in the still point, not in some idea that things are in your way. If I have the idea that I can only be mindful in a very controlled meditation retreat, That I'm already primed to seeing everything else in life as an obstruction. So I'm being too narrow. I'm idealizing mindfulness, making it it into something only possible when conditions are a particular way. Years ago, when I was a novice monk, a samanera, I fell into a heap on the floor of my cootie and started crying. I can't do it. It's too much. I can never do this. And yet, while I was sobbing in a heap of anguish, there was something watching it all. It was like a program going on, but I was not that program. It was as though it wasn't me anymore, but it was happening, and there was something knowing it. Sorry, and there was something knowing it was happening, which wasn't a heap of anguish, and it was all very clear. If any of you have seen me at that time, you would have thought, oh, Ajahn Sarmado is really having a bad time. He's having a breakdown. I've never seen him so upset." That's why I say you can't judge these things, because if you had judged it from how it appeared would not have understood it. Many of you, I'm sure, have found yourselves going off emotionally, yet with something at the back of you knowing it isn't that way. Emotions are conditioned into us, aren't they? That's why we can have very immature emotions even when we're quite old. It's embarrassing to have childish emotions when you are a dignified 67-year-old bloke like I am, especially when you're supposed to be some kind of wise master of meditation. quote unquote. But I don't despair about it, because it doesn't mean anything really. The teaching on dependent origination the teacher or what they like also to call in Pali, Pali iddha which literally means um, uh, specific conditionality or the conditioning of one thing by another, uh, is that when certain conditions arise, there are certain results. So conditions arise for emotions, and emotions follow. That's why if you are in the buddho, this awareness, you have more of a perspective on what's happening, even though on a mature intellectual judgmental level, what has arisen might seem silly or foolish. There's a kind of super-ego that likes to knock you down and tell you how silly you are, but don't believe that either. That's another habit we have. Alternatively, we can trust in the buddho and see that this emotional thing, no matter how foolish or silly it might appear, belongs at this moment. It is what is included in the point that includes. So it belongs. It's not something that should not be. As you relate to things like that, you can actually let them go. If you see them on a personal level, you're still holding to them in some way, and you're not allowing them to go. One monk recently went to see his family, and during his visit, had these amazing emotional swings. The conditions were there for feelings that had not previously been resolved. Even though he's in his 30s, being at home brought up this sense of little boy and mother and father and all this kind of thing. If the conditions are present, no matter how old you are, this is how you feel. We might be annoyed or angry with our parents because we think that they are making us feel like this, but they are not. It's just that the conditions are there. As we begin to understand it, we can at least work from this point. We don't have that much control, of course, over what our parents do. If I shout, YOU ALWAYS TREAT ME LIKE A CHILD, they'll just feel guilty and maybe try to act how they think I want them to. and Then it goes back again to this other thing. It isn't a matter of making it into a problem, however, but of recognizing how our emotional nature can be stuck in patterns that we acquire when we are children. When we grow up, We try to take on the role of the adult, but underlying that, there might be emotional habits that that have never been accepted and understood. and These can come out in breakdowns and so forth. When people get old, they very often go through all sorts of things. My father went through a whole range of temper tantrums, which stemmed from all the little things he'd never resolved in his life. At 90! It's sad to see, isn't it? But realize you're going to have to face this at some time in your own life. So I want to encourage you to see that meditation includes this. It's not that we are just seeking a blissful state. In certain situations, we can revert to the most childish reactions. As we acknowledge this, however, and trust more in our awareness, then as these things come up, we don't have to make them happen, they'll happen, they'll happen in our lives, we can trust in being the Buddha, the knower, rather than the personality that's having a tantrum. so this uh is a um, an area that Lumpur would speak about very often and particularly um uh one time when uh his uh, his mother's health was quite poor, and uh his sister and her and her husband they they lived close to uh lumpur toma's parents and their parents down in san diego and so uh, at a certain point uh, his mother's health was quite bad and uh his sister uh, virginia had had called him up and said please 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 you've got to come and help things are really difficult here I, you know i need backup i need backup so he uh, made a, a, an arrangement to come and spend three weeks with his family uh, down there to give his sister a bit of a break and um so that was longer than he usually spent with his family but he he would visit them pretty much every year but this was uh a, a bit more of a um uh, uh, say a, uh, uh Difficult situation or a testing situation that mother had been ill and and uh, the sister was having to do more more caring. So uh, when when Lumpur came back from that trip, he said what what had happened was that uh, because he was going to be there for three weeks uh, <coughs> and and so living in the house with them for all that time, he said his father at the age of ninety had met him at the front door and said, uh, "Let's get one thing straight. In this house, I'm in charge. Okay?" <laughs> if I so there like I'm 67 years old. I'm an abbot of a monastery. I've been a Buddhist monk for <laughs> 35 years, and my 90-year-old dad is telling me you know, he's in charge. OK. And he, and, uh, but when he came back from that, if you know, those of us who are around you know, oh, he said over and over again, "Everyone should try this. This is an extremely good practice, you know, capital G, capital P, to go and uh, live with your, your aged parents for three weeks. And and being basically treated like a naughty boy, and uh, and bossed around by his his dad. And I think part of what he's referring to here, having temper tantrums, and things that are unresolved. There's his dad, aged ninety, and with his son, a sort of very much an adult, you know, already at retirement age, (laughs) but uh, uh, still feeling like he and uh, how to do it when he has to go to bed and such like. But uh, the, the, um, I think this is also very, very helpful advice that, as Lumpur was say, saying when he was a, a novice, having this sort of breakdown, like um, this kind of howling in anguish, tears running down his face, oh, I can't bear it, I can't bear it. Even when those moments come, when they, as they do from time to time, then it's absolutely true. I can say, say from my own experience that even as the, the tears are flowing, there's something that knows oh you know this this is this is really sad or this is really painful this is that's not caught in it that's that's knowing what's there and uh that that as the emotion is flowing it's without suppression without without criticism or complaining, just letting that wash through the system they um then the emotion is fully there but there there's no sense of wrongness or it shouldn't be this way or that there's that. in fact there's even as the emotion is strong and painful there's no suffering around it if that makes sense that the, the even as the tears are flowing there's that knowing. the knowing of it doesn't have any suffering there's no sense of it shouldn't be this way or when's this going to be over or this isn't fair so that uh, that's a, a very important principle to as those those difficult Times come where you're very frightened, or angry, or sad, or or just anguished, or you're you're really something but you don't even know what you are. Like, oh, I feel. What do I feel? I don't know what I feel. I just feel it. You know, but sometimes it hasn't even got a name. <laughs> uh, just to to uh, to trust that that process of uh, letting it flow through the system, and uh, and then also with you know, particularly childish emotions. I remember a friend of ours. In the the states, um, a Zen teacher, uh, Yvonne Rand, she said that with on her uh, one of her workshops, she'd have her students saying uh, as a sort of group mantra, um, "It's not fair. I want one too." <laughs> <laughs> and just the kind of those so sort of childish statements, or, or you know, <laughs> that uh, like a little sort of uh, infant, "It's not fair. I want one too. You can't make me." And uh, and to be able to say that out loud, and then you've got these sort of mature, kind of middle aged Californian meditators <laughs> <laughs> gathered together, and then you realize that's actually very helpful <laughs> 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 to, to be able to give voice to those childlike uh, impulses and just to know them as they are. That sometimes we do feel that like, that's not fair. Oh no, not that again. How, how many times have I told you? Just eh. to, to, to let that be known, be fully conscious, and arises, does it sing, and then fades away. So that's the end of that talk and these words for consideration.